This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. And it's a tough one today for the hot question of the day. But, you know, I've been getting emails from people in the last 24 hours who are concerned after reading about the Ethiopian Airlines crash on the weekend, so many Canadians, 18 Canadians killed there. And now you've got all of these countries all over the world that are saying, you know what, until we know more about this, we are not going to allow those Boeing 737 MAX 8s to fly into our airspace. They're just not happy with what the response has been. Countries like the United Kingdom, Australia, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Morocco, uh, Oman, um, Aero Mexico is no longer flying their uh, Boeing 737 MAX 8s either. And yet Canada has so far resisted those calls. Air Canada has 24 of those planes. WestJet has 13. Sunwing has four. And we know that Air Canada has already cancelled some flights from Halifax to London because that plane won't be allowed into the airspace of the UK. So we're asking you, what should Canada do here? Should we continue on, business as usual, or should we say, no, safety first, let's ground these, figure out what's going on, and then when everybody feels safer, put them back into use on that. So that's our hot question of the day. Now you can write me, and a number of people have, and they've already told me, they don't feel safe with this. Uh, they don't feel safe with this. They would like to see these things grounded. I've already gotten half a dozen emails that say that. How do you feel about this? Now, if you're online, if you're on Twitter, you can go to SimiSarah980. If you would like to write me, it's Simi at CKNW.com. And also use our buzz line here, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. It's kind of like what Gordon McDonald was saying earlier. It's one thing for us to believe those planes are safe, but would you get on one today? All right, let's talk about the situation in Surrey. Interesting vote that Surrey Council had last night, actually. They voted five to four to keep clothing donation bins on site and open. Now, they voted that even though there are a number of BC cities that have decided to remove those bins or order them locked because there have been quite a few deaths involving those bins. There was one in West Vancouver in December, a couple, there was one in Surrey a couple of years ago. So, what prompted this decision where most people are going the other way. Surrey decided, no, we're going to keep them. Joining us now to talk more about this is Global News reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. And I have to admit, uh, this vote by Surrey City Council really caught me off guard. I would have thought it would have been a no-brainer to get rid of these bins or at least close them down, lock them up. As you say, the city of Richmond, West Vancouver, Vancouver all deciding to go that way. But last night, City Surrey Council voting 5-4 to four to keep those bins open. I spoke to Councillor Brenda Locke after that vote, and she too was really surprised about the decision. She was the one who put the motion on the table to get rid of the bins, and here's what she has to say. Well, I think it's important because we know that we have lost a life in Surrey um, in a clothing bin, and recently there was a person died in West Vancouver in a clothing bin, this is not a rarity. This happens, um, unfortunately, too often. Are you surprised this was voted down by council, defeated? I was shocked it was voted down in council. I um, can't understand for one moment why anybody wouldn't have wanted to get rid of those bins. They are death traps, and it is a horrific long protracted death for those people that are trapped in a in a clothing bin 
did you just assume this would be a slam dunk and everybody would be on board with this because other municipalities across Metro are going this direction? I certainly assumed that the majority of council would have absolutely wanted to get rid of the bin. You're right, Janet, that is so interesting because, as you pointed out there, other municipalities have done this. Vancouver did it in January, and that was unanimous when they decided to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, the other side of the vote, five people on council voting to keep them open. Uh, They included the mayor, Lori Guerrera, Doug Elford, Mandeep Negra, and Allison Patton. I caught up with Allison to ask her why she decided that it was a good thing to keep these bins open and operating. Here's what she said. I looked at the organizations that benefit, like the Hospice Society of Surrey, um, that the Boys and Girls Club, uh, the Community Living Society, uh, the Canuck Place Children's Hospice. And then I looked at how we had talked with the bin um, management, the people managing the bins, and had asked them to do some modifications or replacing the bins with the new designs, and they had agreed to do that. I felt that we were taking all the actions we could and and still could see the benefit from the bins to these organizations. But in the meantime, do you think it's fair to keep these bins? We've had somebody die in the city of Surrey getting trapped in one of these bins not too long ago. We definitely don't want people dying in these bins 100%. So do you think it's it's a good move to keep them in the meantime while we wait for these new designs then? Well, it, it appears that uh, some of these modifications have already been made, so I'm not sure if we're waiting too long. I think that um, solutions are, getting, are, are out there already. So you're confident that these bins are safe that are out there right now, these, these 83 bins that are remaining? Um, well, I think that um, it appears that when we look at the benefit-to-risk ratio, um, it doesn't appear that there's a high risk. Okay, Janet, those, I can only call that interesting comments. Yeah, I, I, I it was difficult. I, I couldn't quite understand what she meant, benefit to risk, because there have been a total of eight people who have died uh, involving these donation bins in Canada since 2015. So clearly, there is a certain risk to these bins. And uh, it is about the design of these bins. Yeah. There is a group of students at UBC Okanagan working on a new design. Uh, but right now, I don't think a new design has actually come out yet. But uh, Alison Patton seems to think there is a new design out there and that new bins are actually being manufactured right now using the new design. That is news to me. If that's happening, fair game. I didn't know that. Um, But that's the way it stands right now. And, you know, she also points out too, and rightly so, that charities get money from the items dropped off at these bins. But I guess the question is, can we not have a different type of bin to drop off our items? Or can we not instead go to the charity shops and drop them off in person. Do we have to have the bins? And you know, Simi, uh, Councillor Jack Hundal, I've also talked to him about this too, he made an excellent point. He said, you know, we don't allow fridges and freezers to lie around on our city streets for safety reasons. So why do we allow these bins? And 
for the very same reasons, because people can get trapped in freezers and fridges when the doors close behind them. So I thought that was an excellent point. So why do we allow these bins? Other cities are voting to get rid of them. Uh, yeah, this is a That's surprising a uh, vote by the city of Surrey. It, Absolutely, it, it is. It really well. is. And you're right. Like, if people want to donate, then we need to make sure that our goods get to the places where we want to donate to. The charities have other ways of doing this. We didn't always have these bins. And another point, too, I don't know about you. No. Kind of, I, I get a lot of calls uh, during the week from different charities asking if I have anything. Yeah. Are you still there? Yep. I Go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Sydney? Just repeat. Yeah. Start again from what you were saying there. You know what? We've lost Janet Brown. Simi, are you still there? Oh, you know, Simi, we've are... lost Janet Brown there for a second. So we'll try to get her uh, back and see if we can get that reconnected. But I get what she was saying there is that I also get phone calls at my house uh, from organizations that say, do you have anything to donate? And there have been a couple of times in the last few years where I have made connections with them to drop off several bags, like big garbage bags full of stuff, right? When you got teenage Children, yeah, they all grow stuff pretty quickly. So it is possible to make sure that these charitable organizations still get uh, the the items that you are willing to donate without having to use these bins. Let's just see if Janet is back with us right now. Janet, are you there? Sorry about that, Simi. Uh, must have been a lost connection. But what I was going to say, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this and also our listeners, that I get calls a couple of times a week from different charities saying, hey, do you have anything to donate to us this week? And they send their truck around and lift it right off my porch. How easy is that? These organizations are out there. We don't need to be dropping off at these bins. And something else, too, I'm sure a lot of people notice around these bins, quite often, if these bins are full or the items are too big to put into the bin, they just leave them beside the bin and they create an eyesore. Yeah. Uh, they have to send out city crews to clean them up. So, yeah, they don't make a lot of sense to me in this day and age. Why do we need them still? I don't know either, but this is a weird one from Surrey Council. So, Janet, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That is Janet Brown, our global news reporter, talking about this case from Surrey where they voted five to four, so close vote, to keep these clothing donation bins open. Let's talk a little bit more about this uh, college admissions cheating scandal out of the United States. It's a huge investigation. 50 people have been charged. And as we've learned, there is a local connection to this. One of those 50 accused is a well-known alum from the University of British Columbia. David Sidhu, also well-known local businessman and philanthropist, well-known in the football community. He spent five years playing in the CFL uh, for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So what happened in this case? What do we know? Well, let's find out. Richard Zussman joins us now, Global News reporter, for more on this. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Quite a shock to see that name there. Yeah, it sure is. David Sidhu, as you mentioned, uh, well-known in political circles as well. He's a recipient of the Order of BC. Uh, when UBC won the Vanier Cup, which is the championship for university football in this country, he traveled to Ottawa uh, and showed off the trophy uh, to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So this is a guy very familiar with the corridors of power in this country. And you mentioned, you know, in this indictment, all of these are allegations at this point. We don't have any details, but, you know, what this 
stems from or allegations that Sadhu uh, paid someone off to write uh, entry-level exams to university on behalf of his two sons, and that individual uh, received higher scores, hypothetically, than his sons uh, would have received and had received in the past. Uh, and by paying this amount of money, uh, in some cases, based on the indictment, $100,000 to have this individual traveled across the United States into Canada to write the exam, uh, it made it easier for uh, his kids to get to school. One of his sons still at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a rower there. Uh, so all the stems. It's also important to read out the statement uh, that's been sent uh, from David Sadu's lawyer. So let me, can I read it in yeah, full? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So let me read the statement in full. David Sadu has been repeatedly recognized for his philosophy philanthropic endeavors, which is the true testament to his character. The charge that has been lodged against David is an allegation that carries with it the presumption that he is innocent. We look forward to presenting our case in court and ask that people don't rush, rush to judgment in the meantime. Okay, so that's the only statement. Do we know, what was he arrested? Did, what happened? How long has this been kind of in the works? Yeah, so our understanding is that it's been in the works for a little bit, that he was arrested. We haven't yet uh, fully confirmed the details yet, uh, but our understanding was that uh, he was detained at some point. We're still trying to work out the details of, of how long he was detained for. Uh, and uh, our, our guess now is that he has been uh, released. Uh, but we're still trying to work out those details, and we don't have any of the details yet on court appearances, when he's expected to appear in court to defend himself against these charges. You know, one of the reasons you're having me on as well is because this has political uh, yes, ramifications as that. well. So uh, he has been a longtime donor to the BC Liberal Party. Again, as I mentioned, very comfortable in the corridors of power. I'm just looking here at the contribution sheet uh, before the rules were changed in BC around individual uh, donations. Sadhu made some very significant contributions to the BC Liberal Party uh, to the tune of more than $166,000 over a 12-year period. Uh, there were two donations of $50,000 each, one in 2014 and one in 2015. Uh, so clearly, Sadhu um, is a supporter of the BC Liberal Party. Uh, and then he also received uh, his Order of BC uh, soon after making these political donations. Obviously, we don't have any idea if any of these things are linked, but uh, he was somebody who's very familiar within those circles. Uh, and the Order of BC is sort of the highest honor that can be bestowed upon a British Columbia, a British Columbian for their contribution to British Columbia. Right. And there was a time as well where he was on the UBC Board of Governors. Yeah. So he has a huge, and, and I used to um, call the UBC football game. So I'm very familiar with David Sadu and his role that he played at the university. So a member of the Board of Governors, but more importantly, a really prominent role um, with the UBC football team as a major booster. And he was hugely significant in bringing in Blake Nill, who's the head coach of UBC. Uh, he was a championship coach from Calgary and before that St. Mary's in Halifax. And Sadu was in part able to convince Nill to come to UBC and they quickly won a title after that. He was also significant in recruiting Michael O'Connor, who's a star quarterback, uh, who many think now could potentially be an NFL draft pick, if not a CFL draft pick. And Sadu was huge in putting money into that program program and giving it attention. His name is on the stadium Oof. on the field at UBC. So, you know, he's a major player in the football community in donating money, but also spent a huge amount of time. He, this is a man who cares incredibly passionately about that program. Uh, but there have been sort of questions in the past about, you know, how much, uh, role did his money have to play in, in helping that program. But he was, he dedicated a lot of time. He was a committed, uh, 
member of that booster club that encouraged others to donate as well and, and get people behind the UBC football team. Right. Okay. So this is like a, a very well-known person. And from what we could see from all the names on there, the only person really from outside of Canada that we could identify. Outside of the United, inside of Canada. Sorry. Yes. Inside yeah. of Canada. Yeah. So, you know, we're still working our way through that list of 50, you know, some of the names that popped up, obviously were some Hollywood celebrities, Felicity Huffman, uh, Lori Laughlin as well, uh, both actresses. Uh, they were linked as well uh, to um, allegations around uh, paying to get their children into uh, highbrow universities in the United States. You know, I think most people will be familiar with the way the process works in the United States is you have to write these standardized tests. And in many cases, students will not be considered if they get low enough grades. So yeah. they need to get high standardized test scores. And then often, you know, donations and other things like that can help get students in. And I think, you know, sitting on this side of the border, it seems crazy because those sort of barriers, you know, don't exist in Canadian universities. You know, in the United States, um, money often talks. And I think in no this kidding. case, again, these are all allegations. Uh, it's very concerning to people to think that, you know, somebody with a lot of money can help improve the chances of their child to get into an academic institution. And in many cases here, uh, some of the best institutions in the world. Right. Were you surprised when you heard this, Richard? Because you go through some of the details. I'm astounded by the length that some of these already wealthy people were going to to get their kids into these schools. Yeah, you know, what people will do for their kids, I, I guess. guess. But like, you know, reading through the indictment, the number of trips that took place, the number of payments that took place, the the amount of coordination. So, you know, clearly there was uh, somebody linking together uh, parents... Uh, again, all allegations, but the allegations are that somebody was there linking together these parents to people who were good at writing these tests, who could come fly across North America in some cases to write these tests. And so the indictment, a lot of it's redacted because it takes out the names of the individuals who are paid to write the test, but yeah. it describes, you know, payments and then um, high school graduation exams, as well as, you know, purchasing crazy. plane tickets, flights yeah. across the country, a $100,000 payment to write the SAT, you know, email the document listing his son's address and other identical information so that the person can falsify the ID on the test. Like these are pretty well-coordinated yes. exactly, well effort to try to skirt the system, which is designed to avoid people from committing fraud and, and getting others to write the test for them. That is so true. I mean, also, we were talking about this around here, too, is like, and your kids are still young, Richard, so you're going to have to <laughs> learn this as you get older, is like, how far are you willing to go to help your kids in school, right? Like, Help them with their tests, not to pay. I don't have $100,000 to pay. Again, they're all <laughs> allegations. But, you know, you want to see your kid. All parents will understand that. You want to see your kids succeed. And you want to see your kids go into the best schools and get the best opportunities afforded to them. I understand that. But, you know, Sadu will have to face his day in court and explain um, what happened here and, and how these allegations took place. But, you know, you understand trying to help your kid learn math and writing and understand, but you don't do the work for them, I think, is is a basic understanding about how to help your kids along. I know everybody parents differently, but I think my wife and I are trying to do our best at, you know, ensuring that our Good kids luck. can figure out things for themselves. <laughs> Good luck. I mean, I remember seeing this all along and it's one of those, and this is a little bit different, obviously, than what we're talking about here. But I remember like my child doing a project in grade two 
that you had to do the solar system and make all the planets yeah. and stuff. And I remember I was my turn to drive the carpool that week. So I had other kids in the car with their project. And I was looking at these projects and I for sure those kids in grade two had not done those projects. And it just, it's always drove me crazy. And Simi, I'm pretty sure if you could figure it out, the teachers also figured it out. I don't out. know. And, and in this case, obviously <laughs> investigators figured it out. You know, in, in many of these cases, these kids had written the tests before. And one of the things I found most interesting in this indictment is in one of the cases, they told the test writer who had been flown across the North America to do this to not do sort of okay. Like, do slightly better than Ugh. he had previously done. Don't do your max. Don't make it Just so obvious. Don't make it so obvious. And that really stood out to me, to the fact that, you know, these people are getting to write these tests. I have some friends like this who are just really good at standardized tests. Yeah. Some people can write these things and get perfect scores almost every time without studying. It's just the way people's brains work. Uh, and these people were asked to come. Basically, they would tell them the score they wanted them to get. These are oh, all allegations. Oh, my goodness. And they would then get that score. So it didn't look like you were seeing a massive jump, but clearly investigators uh, were able to catch on to what was going on here. Okay. So the local connection here is we're still yeah. waiting for more details on this, but they, just to recap for me, Richard, then the David Sidhu has released a statement. Yeah. So David Sidhu has released a statement uh, through his lawyer, a man named Richard Schoenfeld. Interesting. It's a legal firm based in Las Vegas. Yeah. I thought that was uh, interesting too. Yeah. But the statement basically says repeated, uh, he'd been repeatedly recognized for his philanthropic philanthropic endeavors, which is the true testament to his character, the, tar the charge that has been lodged against David's an allegation that carries with it the presumption that he is innocent. We look forward to presenting our case in court and ask that people don't rush to judgment in the meantime. David Sidhu, obviously a, a prominent businessman in British Columbia in Vancouver, um, member the former member of the UBC Board of Governors, huge booster for the UBC football team, member yeah. of the Order of BC. So obviously a very substantive member of the community in Metro Vancouver. No kidding. And so many questions. Okay. Thank you for that, Richard. Simi, my pleasure as always. Thank you. That is Richard Zussman, our global news reporter, talking about this college admissions scandal story out of the United States. What is the best way to monitor pollution or map pollution across Metro Vancouver? Well, if you ask some UBC researchers, they will tell you, ask the honeybees. So that is exactly what they did. We are joined now by Dominique Weiss, who's a senior author and director of UBC's Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Uh, tell me a bit about this research that you did. So this research came out in a discussion of a f with friends. And one of the friends was Julia Common, who is the head beekeepers of Ice for Humanity. It started in 2014. They had honey produced by some beehives in downtown Vancouver. And the key question was, is the honey clean? And I said, I can help. You know, Hives for Humanity is a non-profit organization helping the community in downtown Eastside. Mm -hmm. And we had 10 samples. And the good news was that the honey was very clean, meaning the trace metal concentrations that we measured in those honeys were actually below what averages observed in other honeys in Australia, for instance, or Europe. So Ice for Humanity honey is very clean. That's interesting though, right? Because a lot of th these days, there's a lot of hives that are right in kind of the downtown part of the city because people are very keen on, on making and selling honey. Yes, and that's where the story is actually quite interesting and has broader implications 
because now many people want to have a city garden, uh, and so it's important to assess the quality of the environment. This being said, though, we also, as we did this same study for four years, and it's perfectly reproducible over four years, we see concentration gradients, which means that the trace metal levels are usually higher downtown and, and around commercial. And as we go away, and basically that works gradually away from the port of Vancouver and downtown east side, the mm -hmm. concentration decrease. So we have some honeys from Delta, for instance. They have much, even much more lower levels than in the downtown area. Interesting. Then, so what does that tell us about the bees? Well, the bees sample the environment. They fly, and that's the, the beauty of studying honey: is that the radius of activity of foraging of a bee is about one to two kilometers. So we have very localized sampling spots. And interestingly also, that's not published in the study yet, but the bees have higher level than the honey, which means that the honey production is, is uh, cleaning right. somehow what the bee samples. And um, so they do the sampling for us. That is so interesting because I know there's also been a huge concern in recent years about what is causing so many bee colonies to die off. So th their relationship with pollution is kind of different than what I thought. Yes, although it depends which pollution you're talking about. Here we're talking about metal pollution that is induced by human activities, such as traffic, boats, um, fuel consumption, like the big cargo, cargo boats that come in the port of Vancouver. Yeah. We, we not, with our technique, we're not analyzing pesticides or organic compounds that make their way into the honey. I see. Okay, so then can we sit, when we look at the honey from these like more urban areas versus like in the uh, country settings, are they very similar? In terms of the metals we measured, there are slight difference, but it's all in low levels. For instance, because we wanted to put our study in a context and, and we defined six sectors in the greater Vancouver area, we also analyzed honey from Bowen Island and from Galliano Island because this was further away from traffic. Right. And they have even lower levels. This being said, Bowen Island honey is slightly more elevated in some trace metals than Galliano, and the explanation for that is, is relatively simple. Bowen is close to Horseshoe Bay. There is a fair amount of ferry traffic that, there, and that's how we make the, the correlation. Right, but then wouldn't also traffic in the downtown area also result in pollution like that? Yes. And we can identify that by some trace element ratios. That is like, so interesting, though. That yeah. You would think that with Bowen Island, that, that would be much more uh, pure honey. Well, all our honeys are pure. Let me give you um, an example okay. or to, to have a feel for what concentration level we analyze. We're dealing with what we call PPB, or parts per billion. And 
one part per billion is equivalent to one drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So that's the levels we are measuring here at PCIGR, the Pacific Center for Isotope and Geochemical Research. Wow. So we, we're very, very low. The other thing that's unique about our technique is that in addition of measuring concentration, we also used what we call a fingerprint technique, let isotope fingerprinting, which allows us to have an idea of the source of the metal. Right. And what we see is that those metals and the Stanley Park trees, because that's part of the, the story too, we analyzed two slices of trees from Stanley Park that had fallen down from in the 2006 big storm. So they have the honey there is as a left fingerprinting that doesn't overlap with anything natural in the area. We have, for instance, comparison with the volcanoes, the Fraser River particles or sediments. It is that let that we find in the honey downtown right. and in Stanley Park doesn't is purely mine made. But what I guess what is so interesting then, Dominique, about all of this is that overall, it, you know, no matter where the t- honey was, whether it's urban, rural, whatever the case is, it's still very pure. Yes. That says a, so, that says a lot about how hard bees work, doesn't it? Yes. And, you know, it was the, we also could not have done our study without the very excellent collaboration with Hives for Humanity. They did the sampling for us. Also, in the middle of the, the, these four years, the project took such a larger scale that the lead author of the, the paper, Kate Smith, is a PhD student. She went to beekeeper training and she has, she's capable of sampling. But we had access to all these very specific hives from Hives for Humanity, and that gave us a, an amazing advantage in our study. Oh, this is just so fascinating. Dominique, thank you so much for your time on this today. You're most welcome. Thank you. As Dominique Weiss is a senior author and the director of UBC's Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. Now, let's talk about the Vancouver Homeless Count getting underway today. And our guest is Sarah Canham, who's the, with the SFU Department of Gerontology. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Why is it so important to do this homeless count? So each year, the uh, homeless count is done here in Metro Vancouver to get a broad stroke look at the number of people in the region who are experiencing homelessness to give us a sense of whether uh, we those numbers are going up or whether they're going down. Okay. And so do we know what's been happening in recent years? Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, so, well, the one thing I guess to mention about the numbers, too, is that it, it definitely is an undercount of the experience of homeless. We do a pretty good job of, of, of getting people, but it does not really give us a full extent of the picture of the extent of homelessness. So there are people who aren't captured through the count because they might be what we call hidden homeless or staying on the couches of their friends or in other sort of very uh, precarious housing situations. Um, But what we see, and in particular the work I do, is related to aging. And what we see as it relates to older adults and homelessness is that the rates beginning in 2017, we saw that about 21% of the uh, people who were experiencing homelessness were age 55 and older. And that, that number 
jumped pretty um, quickly in, since the, the count prior to that and, and, and it stayed stable since that. So I would expect that this year we would see that it would stay stable or probably even increase. Okay, so what does it mean when you use the word, you use the phrase hidden homeless? What does that mean exactly? Sure. So hidden homeless is really the idea that, um, so if you could sort of think of the opposite, which is we see people who are homeless and we see folks who are on the street, shelter providers and service providers see people who are accessing their services. Those are sort of the visual uh, that you could people who are visible, rather. Mm -hmm. Then there are the people who are hidden from services and who are hidden from sight. And so those are the people who are not accessing services. Maybe they don't know that services are even available or exist. Maybe they are, as I mentioned, staying on their friend's couch or in other sort of precarious housing situations that technically, in, in some definitions of homeless, would count towards uh, the experience of homeless. Are we, we get, don't, yeah. Are we getting better at identifying those people? Uh, well, no, it's, it's, it's hard because it, right. it kind of goes both ways, right? People sort of have to self-identify and, and seek oh. out services. But then, you know, as a society, we do need to sort of figure out ways to reach out to people. And, and you know, social isolation is a big issue in later life as well. So how do we reach out to people so that it's, the onus isn't completely on them to seek the services themselves? How do we do that? Mm-hmm. Reduce stigma. Ah. Break, break down the barriers and the ideas that we have that people are at fault for the experience of homelessness. Um, oftentimes, we sort of have this blame and shame mentality that people are responsible for having become um, homeless when in, in actuality, it is a systemic issue and we need to start addressing housing as a, a, a right and as a social justice issue rather than it being a criminal justice issue and, and having negative ideologies about, about people who are in precarious housing situations. Now, are we getting better at that? Because I've noticed that with these modular housing projects that have been coming online, particularly in Vancouver the, and, and in Surrey, these have made a big mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has made a big difference in terms of getting people off of the street, uh, getting people potentially hooked into services that can then lead on a path towards more stable housing. So in many ways, modular housing is, is amazing. It would be really great to have, uh, you know, double, triple, quadruple the amount. Um, but it, it, the, the cultural stigma and the cultural ideologies that we have are a much larger issues that need to be addressed at all in all different places. Uh, and, and a lot of it comes down to sort of education, but as well as experience working with and, and talking to people who have that lived experience. And, and really, that's the best way to break down the barrier and recognize that the lived experience and the and the pathways that people have are all unique, and they're all very different. Um, and we all come from different places. And so everyone's pathway towards homelessness hasn't been the same. Um, and oftentimes, it, it, it is a uh, an outcome of some of these system issues. Right. Okay. So then how does this homeless count work then? How do you find those people that might be the hidden homeless? Sure. Well, I'm not one of the organizers behind it, but I, I will be participating this year. It's really organized through the Homelessness uh, Homelessness Services Association of British Columbia or HSABC, which is one of our project partners. So what they do is they, there's, so tonight is what we call the shelter count, uh, and there are shelters throughout Metro Vancouver where volunteers can go if, if they've registered and uh, essentially talk to people who are staying in the shelter and literally count people. You know, how long have you been experiencing homelessness? What is your race, ethnicity? What is your age? And so on. 
so that's tonight. That's uh, this evening. And then tomorrow is the the, the bigger day where people, where the volunteers will go out into the street to approach people about uh, homelessness. So this right. is people who might not show up in our shelter systems. Okay, so you've got a big day ahead of you. Oh, well, th- <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on this. Thank you for having us. Appreciate that. That's Sarah Cannon with the SFU Department of Gerontology who's participating in the Vancouver Homeless Count, which gets underway today, also happens tomorrow, where they're trying to identify, and in particular, she pointed out, the people who aren't necessarily attached to services who are kind of the hidden homeless, as she said, uh, to try to just count the numbers of people who still need help out there. And there are quite a few of them. You know, I would say that there are a few people out there, if any, who know more than our next guest about child sexual exploitation in this country. Diane Soden is a longtime child advocate who has fought for greater awareness about this issue in the courts, in the BC legislature, in schools, you name it. And now she's decided to retire after almost 25 years on the job. Uh, Diane is going to be retiring as executive director of the Children of the Street Society. That's an organization she founded back in 1995. And she joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much. I feel old because I remember when you founded Children of the Street Society. (laughs) I feel old too. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, what brought you to retirement? What made you think, okay, it's time for me to take a step back? I think uh, my kids are all growing. Um, my husband and I were very fortunate to uh, be the caregivers of uh, nine children. Wow. And um, it's time now that they're getting on with their lives and um, my age. It is a very stressful topic. Yeah. And uh, I think it's time for fresh eyes and uh, for someone who has uh, a passion that's just starting out to make sure it continues. Your passion for this topic, though, has changed countless lives. How did you get into this? Well, unfortunately, I was one of the parents that lost a 13-year-old daughter to a pimp and drugs of the downtown east side. And um, when I went public about the story, uh, several other parents got in touch with my husband and I and uh, had the same story. And uh it was very frustrating for the parents because there wasn't a lot of understanding. There was a lot of judgmental uh, comments made against parents, which kept them quiet. And there weren't a lot of services. And um, I knew I couldn't change uh, everyone's life, but I thought I could do prevention. And uh, go into the schools and talk about how do we prevent this from happening. And uh, I did my first presentation to uh, Coquitlam School District in 1994 about going into the schools. And um, we got into the schools, but only very few schools, uh, grade 11, grade 12. And uh, now we're starting in grade 3 to grade 12 and uh, doing over 550 workshops in a school year. And when you look back then at that history, do you think, okay, we did this? Like, we've, did you, have you accomplished the things that you really wanted to set out to do? We accomplished, um, as a team, a lot of things. Um, We brought it to the attention of the general public, which was the big thing, that this actually happened in our city, in um, Canada. People thought, oh, that's just um, an extreme situation that happened. And the more parents that spoke out, the more parents realized this could happen to my child, no matter what household I have. You made it okay, though, for parents to speak out. That was the thing. Once they heard you speaking out... They thought, okay, now I can tell my story. Absolutely. 
Um, and um, we had a parent support group to begin with. So we had parents come together to share their stories and to support each other because it was very difficult for anyone to really understand understand. Uh, how this could actually happen. And you got a lot of simplistic answers. Uh, just go and get your kid off the street, bring them home, right. phone the police, get the social workers involved. And it was much, much more complicated and much more dangerous than that. And uh, so parents grouped together and a lot of parents didn't want to go public, but they would meet with MLAs and MPs and start telling their stories. So then things changed when it comes to the Child Protection Act and the Criminal Code. So a lot of things have happened that are extremely positive. Um, I also have to say I am was so fortunate to have a couple of media people that uh, were so sensitive to the story. Bill Good on CKNW you were on was Bill, unbelievable. Yeah. And I'll always think of him um, as the one that really pushed it forward. And then Jerry Bellet at the Vancouver Sun, he uh, did the first story on my daughter's situation on the front page of the Vancouver Sun. And um, it really opened doors to people talking about the issue. Let's talk a little bit about your daughter then. When you look back, what were the signs? What, did, what was happening to your daughter? Well, she was 13 years old. Um, she was uh, in uh, grade 7 in an elementary school. She looked a lot older for her age. Uh, she was very mature for her age. Um, my husband and I had adopted her. Um, she was a foster child, so she had uh, a lot of trauma in her life. And she just didn't fit in. She was a, a bright girl, straight-A student. And uh, she was bored most of the time uh, mm. at school. And she had no interest in hanging out with people her age because of her life experiences. And so uh, she would reach out to older uh, people. And unfortunately, they were not the people who had the best interest um, in her mind for her. Uh, we saw her change her friends. We started seeing um, uh, disappearing on weekends, um, then drug use. And uh, what happened is a fellow in the community connected with her and realized that she was a risk taker and he could manipulate her um, and uh, introduced her to uh, marijuana at the time. But what she didn't know, it was actually laced with heroin. And uh, she ended up with a heroin addiction very quickly. And things went from bad to terrible in a very short period of time. As that's what drew you into this. How how mm. common do you think that it still is? What is that danger out there? I think it's common and I still work with youth that um, end up in the situation that my daughter did exactly the same way. Um, but I also see that um, the internet has really opened the yeah. doors. And now you have predators talking to children in the safety of their own homes. Um, parents used to think, well, if I keep my child busy in uh, sports and at home and I supervise them all the time, they're not going to connect with these people on yeah. the street level. Whereas now, they could be in the safety of their own bedrooms on screen talking to a predator. And it's amazing how many teens that I work with that's how they connect with the predator is, first of all, online. And what do they tell you when you talk to them and now they realize what was happening? Did they not see that at the time? I think it's a lot of, um, you got to remember, the person who is the predator is um, filling a, a, a need for that child. And they're manipulators and they know how to find the weakness that yeah. that child is and what Save they're the right, looking the for. Right, right. And that doesn't mean the child isn't loved or isn't coming from a good home. 
think back in your teens. Uh, we all were insecure on certain days, and even as adults, we are. And these manipulators can find those little um, cracks. And um, that young person doesn't have the life skills and falls for it. How big of a problem is this still? And are we still paying enough attention to this? No, we're not. Uh, it's a huge problem. And I still do workshops where people are surprised that this is happening when it comes to parents. Um, Fortunately, we're doing a lot of workshops with service providers now, frontline workers, for example, nurses in the hospital. And they're the frontline lots of times that connect yeah. with these young people in emergency and situations. And they know what to look for now and um, who to report to and how to intervene and what's safe for that young person. So there's a lot more eyes out there. And so the numbers of reports are going up. Is it because it's happening more or is it because people are more aware and reaching out for the services? It's hard to Good know. Um, but I do believe that technology has really opened the gates there uh, for predators to prey on children. The issue of child sexual exploitation is a big one in our society. But the reason why we talk about it, the reason why we know so much about it is because of our guest that we have with us right now. It's Diane Soden, who's the executive director of the Children of the Street Society. She is retiring after almost 25 years doing this. <laughs> it's kind of bittersweet when you think about it. It is very bittersweet. Yeah? Yes. Let's think back. 25 years, lots of changes have happened during that time. More awareness of child sexual exploitation. You've had some laws changed. You've made a real difference. What are some of the things that you're particularly proud of? Well, um, under uh, child protection, um, the criminal code um, of legalization of sexual consent was changed in 2008. And um, prior to 2008, the legal age in uh, Canada was 14 years old. And most parents, adults, teachers... Oh, times have changed, yeah. ...did not understand that or realize it. And uh, it came to my attention when my daughter was pregnant at 14. And uh, I had been trying to get help and uh, for her situation. And when I went to our local police, I said, she's 14, it's statutory rape. And uh, they said, no, you're, there's not statutory rape. Legal age in Canada is 14. We watch American TV, we think of 16. Yeah. And I was just appalled. And when I started talking to people in our community, nobody knew this. It was like the best kept secret except for the predators. And at the same time, the internet was starting to explode and uh, we had uh, predators across the border that the legal age was higher in those states targeting our 14-year-old girls. We could see a trend going there. And so um, the first person I would reach out to at that time was our MP and that was Sharon Hayes from the Conservative oh, Party. Oh, I remember that, yeah. And Sharon uh, helped me uh, develop a petition and get it known in the community and uh, then um, we started presenting those uh, petitions and Chuck Cadman uh, became a very oh, dear Chuck friend Cadman, of yes. mine as an MP and uh, it finally changed from 14 to 16 in 2008 and Eugene uh, Desange really really pushed and um, he I remember meeting with him and uh, he was just appalled when I told him the stories of the kids I work with and you could see that he really thought 
this is wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when it changed. And, um, but, you know, from the time I first started to the time it changed, it was like 14 years. Oh, wow. So, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And also the other list, when you look at all the different programs that you have brought into place, workshops and all the, you know, going to schools and talking to the kids. Have you ever talked to someone, and I'm sure you have, who had a different life because of the work that you did? Actually, I uh, was doing a workshop at uh, one of the colleges, I won't mention it, and there it was nurses. And uh, at the end of the course, this young girl came up to me and she said, I want to tell you, you sh- saved my life 10 years ago. And as soon as she said her name, I knew who she was. Oh. And uh, it was the first time we had the ability to use a Section 28 uh, a protection uh, intervention order against a predator in our community. And uh, she was in her teens and going to high school, and uh, he was much, much older. And we couldn't get charges because she wouldn't give a statement, and she didn't see that she was actually being exploited. They're so uh, young, though, right? She, yeah, and yeah. she was in love. And uh, we were able to get a no-contact order between them. With And at that time, um, an intervention order was be able to be put in place without the, protect, or the approval of the child. And um, so he broke the intervention order, and he ended up in custody. And that's when we could do some work with her and support her. And uh, she, 10 years later, she's now going to be a nurse. Oh, that's amazing. So those are the things that come out of the blue that you'd never expect. And looking back, did she realize now what was going on? Absolutely. And she said it was the best thing that ever happened, even though she hated us all at the time. Well, that's the thing. Like, how hard (laughs) is it then for parents out there? You must have seen that time and time again, Mm -hmm. is that you're trying to tell these young girls, no, listen to me, listen to me. I'm telling you, trying to tell you what's happening here, but how do you get through to them? Well, it's the same as anything with teens. Um, How important is it to go to school? And, uh, you know, they know best at the time and uh, it's where they are developmentally. So you, it is going to be a challenge. Um, And that's why we do the school-based program. um, And we do it with young people presenting, not adults, someone who is a parent figure. They're young people and it's done through storytelling and drama. Kids love drama. And they like to hear a real story, not just don't do this, but a story of what happened, how the person was manipulated. And it's amazing when you're sitting in the classroom, you can see the kids, their eyes looking at each other because you can tell there's something has been going on and they've identified a warning sign there. Oh, so you can see that you're hitting a nerve. Yeah. And then afterwards, they'll come up to you afterwards and say, you know, um, I need some help for a friend. Uh, And that's fine. And so we can walk through what services are available, what they can do. And sometimes they will give us a call or text us and say, you know, I need more support. And then we can support them if they want to give a statement with the police and even further supporting them through the court system. Are we getting, speaking of which, are we getting enough convictions? Are we getting enough? No. Are we getting some? Yes. Um, Criminal code around human trafficking changed in 2005. Uh, Previous to that, um, a young person and an adult were the... To prove that they were being human or human trafficked had to be exactly the same. They've changed it now. So there doesn't have to actually be violence up against a child. There has to be that they are uh, signs or feelings that they are in danger. 
Um, also, the biggest thing is they don't have to cross a border. They don't have to be transported. Right. And um, when my daughter was on a stroll, the kitty stroll in Vancouver, she was 14 years old, and I couldn't get anyone to intervene. And uh, what happened is a young girl was brought up from Portland, Oregon, and put on the street at 11 years old. Oh, my goodness. And within hours, there was police, social workers involved, VPD were there, and three pimps from Oregon were charged. The reason they could do that is because that young girl was brought across the border. At the same time, my daughter's on the same strip, and no one can do anything because she wasn't brought across the border. That's changed. And so we are getting more charges. Um, we had our first charge wasn't until, um, what year was Mozami? Um, 2011. 2011 was when he was charged. Yeah. But he wasn't convicted uh, for a long period of time. In 2015, he was yeah. convicted. So yeah. what you're asking is a young person to be connected to the justice system for four years. That's asking an awful lot of a yeah. young person's life. And uh, he was the first one to get charged under the criminal code of human trafficking of a young person. And uh, he got the long- longest sentence in Canada. So when we did it, we did it big. But there hasn't been a lot of charges. One of the biggest problems is the youth has to give a statement. Oh, so there's still more work to do. Absolutely. I feel like you've still got the passion there, but yeah. I know you're going to be retiring. <laughs> and to help celebrate Diane, there's a celebration of success event honoring her uh, that will be held in just two days, March 14th at Heritage Hall on Main Street. For more information, check out childrenofthestreet.com. Listen, Diane, thank you. And okay. good luck in your retirement. Also, if anyone wants to support our programs, they can buy a WestJet uh, raffle ticket uh, online or get in touch with my office at uh, 604-777-7510. And it's a trip for two anywhere in the world. And that Sounds will be good. drawn on the evening of the 14th. Sounds good. Any questions, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. Thanks, Diane. Thank you. All right, let's get you updated now on the big story of the day. There's still lots of questions about what Canada and the United States plan to do with these Boeing 737 MAX 8 planes. They are still in the air, but really just in North America at this point, it sounds like. To talk more about this, though, we're joined by aviation expert Howard Slutskin. Howard, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Not a problem. Okay, let's talk about this. Like When you hear what's happening around the world, what do you think Canada should do at this point? Well, it's it's. I, I really have to echo what Minister Garneau was saying uh, that um, there is still a lot that has to be has to unfold on this story. Um, it appears that a number of aviation authorities around the world and different airlines are making the leap of linking the Ethiopian crash with the Lion Air accident uh, three months ago. And at this point, there's no indication of any connection whatsoever between the two. Yes, both aircraft uh, had an issue on takeoff, but um, there is no data yet that shows that anything links the two. And I think that's why both the FAA and Boeing uh, have yet to issue any kind of um, airworthiness directive, emergency airworthiness directive, to say that the aircraft should be grounded. Right, but clearly people are nervous about this. Yes, they are, and and that's uh, something that uh, individuals will have to decide whether they believe that there's an issue with this aircraft or not. At this point, the jury's still out. You know, you, you just can't connect the two. 
Right. So we're also hearing that the pilots of that Ethiopian Airlines flight had reported to air traffic control that they were having flight control problems. Do you think this kind of heightens awareness of potential issues with that plane? Like, are pilots more aware now because of what has happened? Uh, I, pilots are are safety conscious from the second they step on the aircraft. And anything that happens during any phase of flight um, is going to be a concern. And they're trained to deal with any kind of issue that comes up. Um, What happened on the takeoff of the Ethiopian flight until the data recorders and the the, uh, voice recorders are analyzed, we really won't know. Uh, Whether other pilots are worried about it, well, I certainly can't speak about right. what they th- they're thinking. But I guess from a customer service standpoint, if you were an airline, what would you do at this point? That's a very good question. Uh, airlines, uh, except in North America, have decided to ground the aircraft. Uh, the North American carriers so far have not. Right. Okay. So this is, this is like one of, the, I would say, the biggest kind of problems to hit the aviation industry in a long time, isn't it? Yeah. In, in many years, I think that the, the last time something this severe occurred was way back when, when the Douglas DC-10, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, had some issues with um, uh, the baggage hold and also, uh, uh, very tragically, a loss of an engine on takeoff. But that was more of a maintenance issue than anything. How technical, Howard, has flying become? (laughs) Well, (coughs) pardon me, just have a look at the flight deck of any of the new aircraft. Uh, They're very sophisticated. Uh, In large part, they're flying computers. The amount of software that's designed into the flight control systems is rather remarkable. Um, It's all there to help the pilots, though. The pilots monitor a lot of the the operations, and uh, uh, it, it makes things smoother and more comfortable for the passengers by having this automation on board, and safer in large part. The number of planes flying are far more than than ever before. And uh, the, this, this issue with the MAX is uh, it's tragic, there's no question, but whether there's a direct link between uh, the automation that's on board an aircraft and what's happening here still has to unfold. There's still some analysis, I think, analysis that still has to come out of the Lion Air accident. And in the meantime, uh, Boeing has announced that they are making uh, software revisions to the flight control system uh, as a result of the Lion Air Act. Yeah, what do you think? What else do you think Boeing should do? I mean, clearly this is getting away from them. Uh, it seems that it is around the world. The biggest question I have right now is whether everybody else on the planet has lost their faith in uh, Boeing and the FAA. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know what Boeing's going to do. It's, uh, it, it, they're, they're really stuck right now because they're saying everything's fine and other regulators and other airline customers are saying, well, you know what, maybe it isn't. Yeah, and that's, you're right. This has a lot to do with American Air Authority too, doesn't it? Yeah, the FAA certified the aircraft and followed Boeing all the way through the manufacturing process to ensure that all the testing was done so that the plane was safe. Uh, and uh, part of what happened, uh, what unfolded with the Lion Air accident was that there was software in the flight control system that it seems that the pilots, uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, didn't realize that they could override it. And uh, that may be part of the issue from, or it certainly looks to be part of the issue from the Lion Air accident. Whether that's the case in the Ethiopian one, we still don't know. All right, Howard, thank you so much for your time. 
You're welcome, Simi. That is Howard Slutskin, aviation expert, talking about this issue.